Please turn in your Bibles to Acts uh, 22 through 23 as we look at the last of the Beatitudes. Uh, it'd be my opinion that physical persecution is unlikely in the West, at least for the immediate future. I think that uh, the persecution of believers is, a, is much more subtle in the Western world. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his famous commencement address at Harvard University in 1978, uh, spoke of fashionable trends of thought. He saw that as dominating discourse, discussion, debate in the United States and throughout the West. He spoke of the idols of the prevailing fad. And all that is driven by our media and consumer culture that uh, I think is easily seen when it comes to buying the right stuff, uh, particularly having the right labels. Uh, back in 1991, when we moved into our house, uh, the beautiful oak floors were all covered with a chocolate brown shag carpeting. Uh, who, who does that? <laughs> well, the answer to the question is, in the 1970s, that was the cool thing to do, to have a shag carpet. Most of those shag carpets were of the most ridiculous colors as well. Uh, but that was the thing, and so everybody did it. They covered up from Georgia to California, I can testify. We covered up beautiful hardwood floors with ugly shag carpeting. Why? Because that was the style. That was the fashion. And so it is. Year after year, we take perfectly fine houses, furnishings, landscaping, wardrobes, automobiles, and we either renovate them or we take them to the junkyard and start over. Uh, why? Because those things that we have, they are so dated. They are so 70s, so 80s. And that all then spills over into our opinions as well. So we speak about groupthink and political and social echo chambers in which we only hear each other talking to each other in agreement with each other about the things worthy of being discussed. And all of that, I'm saying, is a problem for Christians. Why? Because our, our opinions are unfashionable. They're out of date. They're, they're, they're so medieval. Uh, that's what our popular culture would say about um, our convictions. So when we come to this, uh, this uh, fourth of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So this Beatitude is a little different than the others. The others were directly speaking of the character of the disciple. Uh, this one is the response to the circumstances that, that the, the disciple of Christ faces. So that the others were direct attribution. This one is indirect. And, and yet there, there, there is continuity because all of the Beatitudes look more like a curse than a blessing. Poverty, hunger, weeping, and, and now exclusion, social exclusion. These are the these are the people that are blessed, Jesus said. And you have to admit, every single one of them is a head-scratcher. Uh, this one, most of all, because what Jesus is saying 
is that not only will you be down because you're going to be impoverished and hungry and you're going to be weeping, uh, but they're going to kick you while you're down. They're going to hate you and exclude you and, and, and scorn you and spurn you as evil. Uh, that's uh, what's ahead for the disciple. Nevertheless, he says you're going to rejoice. So let's uh, ask ourselves the three questions that we have been asking uh, each of these uh, Beatitudes uh, as we did before. So question number one, who are they? Well, Jesus says that they are going to be hated, they're going to be excluded, they're, uh, they're going to be reviled and spurned as evil. Here's the key, on account of the Son of Man. Why are they hated? Well, they're hated uh, for religious reasons. Uh, they were hated because they are committed to Christ. And I think in many ways, this is the most difficult of all of the Beatitudes because every single one of us wants to fit in. Uh, we want to be a part of the group. We want to be accepted by others. We, we want to receive the invitations. We want to be part of what C.S. Lewis called the inner circle. We won't, don't want to be excluded and, and outside of uh, of acceptable society. And so this, this, this one is perhaps the most difficult of all because we want people to think well of us and Jesus here is promising rejection. And not only that, but he is saying that we should aspire to be the kind of disciple that's going to be hated and excluded and reviled and spurned as evil. Now in saying all that, I think we need to be careful because he's not saying we're going to be rejected uh, because we're all, uh, you know, obnoxious, and I think sometimes Christians are, uh, because we're ornery or because we're difficult or because we're incompetent or because we're foolish. Peter warns of this. If you go to 1 Peter 4, 14 through 16, he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. He might be referring to this very beatitude, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. All right. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, all right, you're blessed. But, he says, verse 15, 1 Peter 4, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're guilty of those things, your wounds are going to be self-inflicted. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. And that's not what Peter is talking about. He even brings in, or as a meddler, uh, less... Uh, perhaps less obviously evil as, as murderers. But you're a meddler. You're always getting into other people's business. I've found myself over the years at times asking myself, why did I let myself jump into the middle of that? I had no business being there, and now I'm, all this trouble has come upon me because I put myself exactly where I didn't need to be. And what what uh, the, the apostle is saying is you, you, get, you find yourself with trouble because you're a meddler. That's not the person that's blessed. Proverbs 26, 17, for example, says, uh, whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. And of course, they're not talking about little puppy dogs. They're talking about the wild dogs of anti antiquity that you don't want to take by the ears. Or also Proverbs uh, 14.1 speaks of the foolish woman who tears down her house with her own hands. So in other words, that's, a, that's another example of a self-inflicted wound. He's not talking about that. 
What, what Jesus is talking about, what Peter was talking about, are those who are suffering on account of the Son of Man. They're suffering because you're a Christian. Suffering because you identify as a, a disciple of Christ. Now, I want us to see that this is not a minor theme in the New Testament, but one to which Jesus and the apostles return again and again. That is, as a disciple of Christ, you are going to suffer. So, for example, John 15, eight, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. This is not a might have tribulation. This is a you will have tribulation. It is certain that this is going to happen to you as one of my disciples. Matthew 24, 9, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Uh, Acts 14, uh, 22, the apostle Paul there says, it's through many tribulations that we enter into the kingdom of God. Not a few tribulations, uh, not the occasional tribulations, but many tribulations. Not just some, many tribulations. We will enter the kingdom of God. Second uh, Timothy 3.12, Peter, uh, rather Paul warns Timothy, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you want to be godly, you want to obey the commands of God, you want to live a holy life, he says, you will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. Philippians 1.29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Notice the language there. Granted to you, like this is some kind of a gift. What a privilege this is, that you, you, silly you, foolish you, sinful you, that you, of all people, should have the privilege, granted the, the, the opportunity for the sake of Christ to not only believe in him, of course, faith is a gift, we understand that, but suffering as well. No, not only to believe in him has it been granted, but also to suffer. How? Why? For his sake. Like I say, this is, this is not an, a minor theme in the New Testament. And this is the way it has always been for the people of God. Abel, persecuted by Cain. Moses, by Pharaoh. David, by Saul. Elijah, by Jezebel. Jeremiah, by Hananiah. Nehemiah, by Sanballat and Tobiah. Daniel, by the officials in Darius's administration in Babylon, John the Baptist by Herod and Herodias. You come into church history then. Eleven out of twelve apostles are martyred. Many of the church fathers, so many that we refer to the age before Constantine, in other words before 313, as the age of the martyrs. Polycarp, for example, at 86 years old was burned at the stake. Ignatius literally was thrown to the lions in the Colosseum in Rome. The Irish and Scottish uh, missionaries of the 6th to 9th century, many of them were martyred as they took the gospel into England and Scotland and then over onto the continent into France and, and present-day Belgium and Holland and, and, and Germany. That then there were the Muslim invasions where formerly Christian lands uh, Throughout North Africa, the Middle East, Asia Minor, all of those were overrun by Islamic armies and, and, and 
There was widespread persecution and suffering uh, by the Christians through, throughout those regions. Coming to more modern times, uh, uh, the modern missionary movement, which began with William Carey at the end of the 18th and into the beginning of the 19th century, wave after wave of young missionary went into foreign fields and, and they died like flies they died from diseases as well as persecution by uh, those who were the proponents of and adherents of, of tribal religions. Uh, still today, in Marxist nations like North Korea, Cuba, uh, China, and uh, throughout the Islamic world today, still Christians are persecuted. We know well Wang Yi, the pastor of the early reign Presbyterian church in Chengdu, China, serving a nine-year sentence. The whole church, its college, its school, um, its seminary, all broken up. Uh, why? For daring to object to the interference of the communist government in the life of the church. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. John Allen, the author of The Global War on Christians, says two-thirds of the 2.3 billion Christians are living in dangerous neighborhoods and are at risk of violence, persecution, and death itself. There's a price to pay to being a Christian. That is what Jesus is warning us of. And sometimes, sometimes this persecution will, t will take place uh, by Christians persecuting other Christians. It'll take place within the life of the church itself. So Jesus is executed by the, by the religious community, as was Stephen. Paul had the opposition of the Judaizers and other jealous rivals. Athanasius is battling the Arians, Augustine, the Pelagians. In Wycliffe in the 14th century, John Huss in the 15th century, Luther and the Marian martyrs, as well as other reformers in the 16th century, come into the 17th century, the Huguenots, the Dutch reform, the Scottish Covenanters, the English Puritans, they're all being persecuted. Jonathan Edwards, after 20 years of serving the North Hampton Church, Jonathan Edwards, arguably the greatest theological, philosophical mind that this country has ever produced, as well as a revival preacher, was fired by his church. J. Gresham Machen, who was the last of the great Princeton theologians from Archibald Alexander to Charles Hodge to Archibald Alexander Hodge to B.B. Warfield to J. Gresham Machen. He's defrocked by the Northern Presbyterian Church in 1936, driven out of the ministry. Today, traditional Christians in the West are, are, are in, 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 in many sectors of our society, are exactly what Jesus uh, says here, reviled and spurned as evil. Uh, why? Because we're part of the oppressive patriarchy, because of what we teach about the family, and because we are advocates of heteronormativity, as they call it, 
and because we are against abortion and the sexual revolution and because we warn against the transgender ideology. And then you throw on the top of all that our advocacy of the exclusive claims of Christ that he is the one and only way, truth, and the life, and, and, and no one comes to the Father but by him. And you do that in, 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 a, in an age of, of diversity and inclusion, and, and, and you're, you're going to be canceled, you're going to be deplatformed, um, you are going to be censored, you are going to be silenced. And, and that by some of the major media corporations with the biggest names to be found in our society today. So our, our society often responds with a kind of a how dare you say that you're right and everyone else is wrong. That your religion is the only one that's right and all the rest of them are, are in error. How dare you say that that lifestyle that has been chosen, which is not even just a lifestyle anymore, it's an actual identity. How dare you assault the very being, the very identity of that person because of, of the moral choices that, that they are making. That's what our society is saying to us today, and it should not surprise us when they say, how dare you judge other people? Because Jesus warned us about this. Look again at what he says. Blessed are you when people hate you. This is what he's saying we can anticipate. They're going to hate you. They're going to exclude you. You're not going to be invited into polite society and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of your loyalty to, your devotion to, your obedience to the Son of Man. That's, uh, that's what who Jesus is identifying, faithful disciples. Okay, so what are they promised? Well, they're promised not only uh, this persecution, but they're promised, verse 23, that their reward in heaven will be great. They're promised a reward, and that reward is going to be a great reward. So this world has lots of rewards that it can offer to us. Uh, it has, uh, you know, many things, material, um, wealth, pleasure, fun, uh, reputation, notoriety, uh, fame, fortune, and so forth. Has, the world has its rewards. It has its passing pleasures. We have to acknowledge that it has its rewards. The part, of, the part about a reward that's in heaven, even as heaven is greater than earth, even as God is greater than man, the rewards of heaven are greater than the rewards of earth. That's the point. Your reward in heaven is great. It's greater than anything that could be offered to you, any reward that this world would present to you. That is the point. It begins with the reward that is God himself. Abraham promised in Genesis 15:1, I am, God speaking to Abraham, I am your exceeding great reward. Jesus' words may be the echo of that promise made to Abraham and to all who are the sons of Abraham, which we are. Galatians 3.29 says, you are the sons of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. God is our reward. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.22, all things belong to you. Psalm 84, no good thing has he withheld from those who love him. So look again at verse 23. 
Rejoice in that day. What day is that day? Well, it's the day of persecution, the day in which you are hated, excluded, reviled, and spurned as evil. You rejoice even in the day of persecution, even in the day of suffering, and leap for joy. In other words, there should be this exuberant response to this delight in the persecution. Now, how can one possibly come to see things in that light? Well, obviously, you have to have an eternal perspective. Uh, Listen to what uh, some of the English martyrs uh, said. John Bradford, who was martyred in 1555, uh, spoke of his martyrdom as an exceeding great mercy. John Philippot, another of the Marian martyrs executed under Queen Bloody Mary said, to die for Christ is the greatest promotion that God can bring any in this veil of misery. That's the perspective that we are encouraged in the New Testament. Listen to the, listen to the voice of the apostles. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. The apostle Paul says, in light of human all the suffering that the disciples of Christ face, he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How does he regard the suffering of the believer? He says it's light, it's momentary. He sees the value of it, the, the, the suffering that we endure. Is, it's preparing us for what? An eternal weight of glory. So you consider the suffering in itself, it may not be light and momentary. It may be long and it may be heavy. It may be terrible. Uh, The point is, comparatively speaking, it's always light and momentary. Why? Because life is short, eternity is long. Because the rewards of heaven are minimal compared to the the rewards of earth are minimal compared to the rewards in heaven. And so whatever you might be suffering as a believer, it's momentary. It's light and light of eternity and the rewards that are to be found there. So that's the point. It's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. See? The comparison. (coughs) Compared to what we receive then, then what we endure now is, is is as nothing. Here's how he's able to say this. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, there's the There's the outlook of the believer. We're not looking at the things that we see. We're not looking at all of the rewards of earth. These are the things that are seen. No, we're looking to the things that are unseen. We're not looking to the things that are transient, that are temporary, that won't last, that won't endure, that we can't take with us. No, no, we are looking to the things that are unseen, invisible, and eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Again, the same thing, Romans 8, 18. Paul says this, I consider that the suffering of this present time, the sufferings of this present time right now, what we're going through now, the persecution that we're enduring, the rejection, the scorn, the the mockery, somewhere along the spectrum, there we are from being socially ostracized, actually being martyred, all of that, that's of the present time. It's not worthy being compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, the glory of God, the glory of Christ, the glory of salvation, the glory of heaven. It's not worth being compared. You have to think of things comparatively. 
There's now, then there's then. There's this present world, then there's heaven. There's the rewards of this life, then there's the rewards that go on and on forever and ever and ever. We find the same in the Hall of Fame passage, spiritual Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11, where he speaks of, of those who, who, who are identified as being those champions of faith. They were looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They're not looking to the present city, the city of man. They're looking to the city of God. Again, verse 16, Hebrews 11. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Their hopes aren't fixed on this world and this life and this country and this nation. No, they're looking ahead, looking forward. This is what the believer does. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Verse 34, that same passage. Uh, believers are able to accept the loss of property and even life uh, because they uh, anticipate I quote, a better possession and an abiding one. They refuse to compromise, he says, so that they might rise to a better life. You see, it's the eternal perspective. This is how uh, Moses, we're told, verse 25 of that same passage, was able to choose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Looking ahead, looking to eternity, looking to heaven, looking to God, not looking to this world, not looking at the things seen, looking ahead to the things that are unseen. That's the only way that you can have joy in the midst of the persecution and the suffering that, it, that is inevitable, that is the lot of believers. <coughs> John and Betty Stam were serving as missionaries in China. In 1934, in July of that year, their daughter Helen was born in December. Just a few months later, they were captured by the communists, and the ransom price of $20,000 in 1934 dollars uh, was demanded. Two days later, they were marched through town, and then one right after the other, first John, and then Betty, beheaded. John was but 27, Betty 28. Helen had been hidden by her mother the day before, was discovered by a Chinese pastor, and then reared by her grandparents, who also were missionaries in China. The last letter he wrote the day before he was martyred, John cited Philippians 1.20. May God be glorified, whether by life or by death. So there, there is this spectrum for believers. The, the persecution, uh, the suffering at the hands of the world or of the church, this is inevitable. There's going to be this spectrum from you're going to be rejected socially to where you're actually going to be put to death. So how is it then, third question, that we attain this joy in the persecution. Uh, Colossians 3.2, you set your mind on things above, not on the things that are below. This is what we have been describing throughout. We, 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 we adopt a heavenly mindedness. We're, we're thinking in terms not of the present, but of eternity. That's our framework. That's our point of view. That's what governs our thinking. That's what determines our outlook. We're, we're thinking eternally. Uh, Peter 
addresses this again, 1 Peter 4, says, For the time is past, that is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. All right, so there's, there's that end of the spectrum. You're not joining in the party. Why are you not getting drunk? Why are you not engaging in immoral behavior? They, they, they're surprised at this. So what, 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 what possible motivation do you have for enjoying all of the wonderful delights and pleasures and rewards of, of this world? And they malign you. They scorn you. They, they ridicule you. They're making fun of you because of it. So there's, there's that end of the spectrum, and then there's the John and Betty stem of end of the, of, uh, of the spectrum, which is, which is martyrdom itself. Whatever end we find ourselves, that's not the outcome that we would choose, is it? We don't want to be excluded. We don't want to be isolated. We don't want to be thought weird. We don't want to be thought strange. We don't want the world's hostility and ire and yet what Jesus is saying here is that's a thing that we have to embrace because that's where the blessing is to be found. Blessed are those who. Looking again at verse 23, for so their fathers did to the prophets, which is Jesus' way of saying, look, you're, if you're persecuted, if you're hated and excluded and all the rest, you're in good company. You're going to be classified along with the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, all the rest of them, you'll be classified along with them. You are partners with them. You are privileged to be numbered among them. And so rejoice, Jesus says, in that day. Not in the fact of persecution itself. Some of the early Christians erred in thinking that they should actually pursue martyrdom. No, no, it's not to be pursued. It's a thing to be regretted and avoided in as much as you can and remain faithful. But if remaining faithful, you cannot avoid uh, the world's form of persecution, whatever that form might be at a certain time and at a certain place along the spectrum from being socially rejected to being actually martyred, then you embrace that. And you rejoice in that, knowing that there is a reward for those who do so. And, and God is, is promising to bless those who do so. Again, going back to Moses, Hebrews eleven twenty six, 26, he considered the reproach of Christ. That's what the Christian bears. Christ, I mean, where did he end up? He ended up on a cross. He'd done nothing wrong. Moses considered the reproach of the Christ as he anticipated Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the what? He was looking to the reward. And so the reproach of Christ, oh, that's greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking to the reward, and that reward is vastly outstrips any kind of worldly reward that might be available to any one of us. Uh, Tim Keller has used the example of a couple of factory workers uh, working long hours, Terrible pay, terrible conditions. One of them is promised at the end of the year of drudgery, they're going to get a, a bonus of $10 million. 
The other one is not promised any, any bonus at all. He's just going to continue with the drudgery. He asks the question, do you think the difference in outlook, do you think there will be a difference in outlook between the one that's going to get the bonus at the end and the one who's not going to get the bonus in the end? Does that bonus not you know, cast its light back across the entire year of, of hard labor in terrible conditions with little rewards? Does it not cast a light back and change and alter the outlook of the person who's going to get the reward? Yeah, it makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it? It just shapes, it gives you a whole different perspective on what's ahead. And it's that of which Jesus is speaking. Your reward in heaven is going to be great. That should affect our outlook, whereby we're, we're capable then of, 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 of denying ourselves the rewards of this world where faithfulness requires it in order to get the rewards of heaven that are given to us by God in Christ by grace. So this is the last of the Beatitudes. Let's wrap up. Uh, wrap up. We're to aspire to be poor, hungry, weeping, and socially rejected. We're to aspire to be the kind of disciples who will be poor, hungry, weeping, and rejected. We're to aspire to that. And this is what Jesus makes of us. He makes of us. He so transforms our lives, so transforms our hearts that we become people who are characterized by poverty of spirit, by hunger for righteousness, who weep for our own sins and for the evils that we see in, in, in the world, and who are able to rejoice even in rejection because we know that's what the faithful have always done. And knowing that our reward in heaven will be great. So there's these, can we call it the tensions of the, of the Christian life. We're not as carefree as other people. But the Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 8.10, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yes. Not carefree. But nevertheless, we're always rejoicing. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8.9, we have nothing we're not provisioned like other people have. We don't have all the goodies of the earth. But yet, he says, we possess everything. In Christ, we possess everything. Philippians 2.12, we go hungry, yet we are filled and content. 1 Corinthians 3.21-23, we are hated and excluded, and yet all things are ours, whether things present or things to come. In other words, there is a tension in there, but nevertheless, what's the life worth living? It's the life of the disciple. The, the one who is poor in spirit, who hungers for righteousness, who weeps for evil. And when persecuted, nevertheless, he has joy in, even in that. Even then, even then, he's able to rejoice always and in everything give thanks. That's the life that's worth living, and that's the life. These are the ideals of the Christian life, and it's to that life that Jesus calls us as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we would aspire to these beatitudes, and that this is what you would make of us. We pray that we would be born again to this living hope, that we would be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit 
in, to such a degree that we embody these very ideals represented by the Beatitudes. Make us to be the very thing that you call us to be. Knowing in ourselves that we are weak and foolish and incapable of fulfilling them in our own strength, but only by the strength that you provide. In Jesus' name, amen.